listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. As you're finding that, let me mention, as Robert prayed, and thank you for those prayers, that Jacob and I are going to Uganda uh, this Thursday. And so please do be in prayer for that. We're going to be there. They've already been in the building that you have helped to build through your giving. And it's going to be kind of a grand opening of that in a sense. So I'll have the privilege to preach next Sunday there. And then Monday, uh, we're going to do a, a short, small little pastor's conference to encourage the pastors there, about 60 pastors that I've gotten to know over the years, and I'm really excited about that. And you remember Conrad Mbewe, who has been with us several times, who is in uh, Zambia, which is close to Uganda, not bordering Uganda, but close to it. He has written a book called Pastoral Ministry in the African Context, and because of your great graciousness, we're able to take, I'm taking a bunch of those books with us uh, to, to give to those pastors. And so please do be in prayer for that. One little thing you can pray about is that um, you have to apply for an online visa. And I have gotten mine back, but I haven't gotten Jacob's back yet. But I was talking to Reuben this morning, who's from the continent of Africa, and he says, ah, don't worry about it. Just go. So um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, we'll see what happens. Um, uh, I take it from Reuben's uh, a, 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 a native of the continent. He knows how it goes. Okay, I know what I'm up against. I know what I'm up against. I know the children are in here, and I know for various reasons, some of you were up late last night. I heard there was an athletic contest in Atlanta last night, and then some of you were watching the other ball drop in New York. But I want us this morning to tune our hearts. I want to help us as we enter this new year. We're going to, in a couple weeks, begin a series through the New Testament letter of Hebrews. Next week, actually, Logan Copley is going to preach from Deuteronomy, I believe. It's going to be wonderful. I can't wait to listen to that message when I get back from Uganda. But this morning, on this first Sunday of 2023, I want us to consider how we should posture ourselves as we begin this new year. And we've already prayed about it and sung about it a bit this morning already. There's this, oftentimes, this strange tension that exists. Are you, are you a New Year's resolution type of people? I, I kind of am. I think it's a, a kind of natural time for us to reflect back on the past year and think about the new year and to think about ways and things that we can do or not do to help us serve the Lord better in the coming year. I think that's a natural and good instinct that we have. But here's my burden this morning is that sometimes in this age of independence, in this age of individuality, in this age of self, there can be almost a kind of subconscious tug that makes us be overly introspective as if everything that we are looking forward to or wanting to accomplish or change in this upcoming year depends solely on us. And I want us to get some scriptural undergirding this morning to see that actually it is not all up to us 
It is the Lord who does his work through his people. And so I want to give you the outline. I'm going to read Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to give you the outline of what we're going to do, and then we're going to work through this text here. We've got three points here. This is the outline. We're going to look at the doctrine of God's providence, the doctrine of God's providence. Secondly, how Proverbs 16, in particular these nine verses, helps us apply this providence to our lives. How, how this text that we're going to read works it out practically in the life of a believer. And then finally, we'll look at three confessions for believers to begin a new year. So let me read our text and then pray. This is what Proverbs 16 verses 1 through 9 says. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little righteousness than great revenues with injustice. In verse 9, and I think verse 9 is really a summary of all of Proverbs chapter 16 in a way, Verse 9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let me read that again before I pray. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, as we think on this first Sunday of this new year, we are so grateful for your kindness, for your mercy, which we have already prayed and sung about. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Psalm 124 says, then we would have been swallowed up. But you have been gracious to us. So Lord, as we gather this morning, as we consider this text, as we think about planning for a new year, may you establish our steps. May you root our feet on the firm foundation of your good and gracious providence. And from that, Lord, may we rest and may we strive. I pray that you'd help us this morning be more like Jesus. And I pray it all in his glorious name. Amen. Okay, let's put a pin there in Proverbs chapter 16. We're going to come back to it. But I first want to give us a, a bit of an overarching understanding of the doctrine of God's providence. What do we mean by that? Just very simply, this word providence. By that, I am wanting to state that this means that God is in control of all things and directs all things for his purposes. And when I say all things, that means everything. There is nothing that exists that is outside of that umbrella of God's controlling, good, gracious, utter, exhaustive control and providence. 
Now, that's one thing to say, but it's another thing. We need to see this in the Bible. So let me read to you very quickly some texts that I think bring out this truth for us. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to Old Testament Israel when they were in the middle of rebellion. And this is God telling them who he is. And he says in Isaiah 46, starting in verses 8, it says, Remember this, this is God speaking, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, listen to this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 11, listen to this, this is the Apostle Paul. One of the most sweeping and beautiful statements of God's providence in all of the Bible. Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, listen to this, all things according to the counsel of his will. This beautiful verse that we all love, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Have you guys heard of Romans chapter 8, by the way? I don't know, I don't know if you've heard of it before. It's a good chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those, now this is a specific promise. This isn't just a universal statement for all of creation. This is for God's people. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So that means everything. Good, bad, delightful, undelightful, evil, glorious, mountaintops, valleys, all things work together for good according to God's good providence because of his purpose. Psalm 115 verse 3, testifying to the power of God. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Speaking of Jesus, the Son, in his, in, his, in his creation and what he has done. For by him, the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So there's a purpose for everything that exists, even wicked rulers. And he is, verse 17, before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then this final glorious doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Okay, so these passages, I think, just leave absolutely no doubt that God is providentially in control of all things. And we should stand on this. But let's look at how Christians, and I find this very encouraging and helpful. Let's look at how Christians, through the centuries have pieced together these scriptures and have come up with summary statements or confessions or, or doctrine to help us understand what these verses are and how they apply to our life. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is coming from a city in Germany named Heidelberg. It was an instrumental city in the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. If you're in the army and you're ever stationed in Germany and you don't go to Heidelberg, you're missing out. Go to Heidelberg and see there what all the Reformation history. And there was a group of Christians that wrote a catechism, a question and answer teaching tool that Christians have used throughout the centuries. And this is question 27 about providence. It says, what do you mean by the providence of God? Here's the answer. Providence is the almighty, 
ever-present power of God by which he still upholds as though with his own hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. That's a good definition now. Those German cats back in the day knew what they were talking about. But, but how does this work itself out in our lives? What does this do for us? Here's the next question, question 28. How does it help us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? In other words, okay, that's gloriously true, 30,000 feet in the air. How does this land in my life? What does this do for me on a dreary Tuesday? This is what they said. Answer, we can be patient when things go against us thankful when things go well, and confident for the future in our faithful God and Father, fully trusting that nothing in creation can separate us from his love. For all things are created so entirely in his hand that without his will they cannot even move. That's good. Okay, let's, let's look at one more historic example. This is, and you guys know I love this, this is the, uh, the 1689, or sometimes called the second, London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's called that because it was published in 1689 in London by some Baptists. Creative name. And this is the, this is the, the English Reformation, one of the great confessions coming out of the English Reformation. And this is how these Christians put together this understanding of God's providence and sovereignty in all things. And I, I want you to be tuned into some mystery that they account for in these two statements that I'm going to read. This is paragraph three, uh, number one here, on, on God's decree. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. In other words, God's not reacting to anything. He's not like, oh my gosh, Adam and Eve took a bite. What are we going to do now? He's not reacting. He's, he's, he's ahead. He's before all things. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet, now here's the mystery, yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. So right now you may be wondering, well, how can God be above all? How can everything come from him and through him, and yet he's not the author of sin? How do those two things fit together? We don't entirely know. This decree, this decree, it continues, does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's degree. In other words, everything that seems sort of random, it's, it's not sort of outside of God's sovereign decree and control. It's actually falling out and it's undergirded and it happens because it's upheld by his decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. Okay, one more paragraph. Hang with me. One more paragraph, because there's, there's a sentence in here that is really, really helpful. So this is paragraph five, number four, on providence. This is what they conclude here. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall, meaning Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, 
and every other sinful action of both angels and humans. In other words, nothing, listen, listen, they're saying something so comprehensive in its scope, it's almost mind-boggling. They're saying that nothing has happened outside of God's control according to God's purposes, but yet God is not culpable for that fall, but yet somehow, in some mysterious way, he's in control of it all, in control of it all. God's providence, we continue, over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. <laughs> Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and gov- governs sinful actions. I want you to get this next sentence. I want, you to j- I want you to hang on to this bad. This sentence is really important. <laughs> and it's also the understatement of the year so far. And we're about 12 hours in. Through... A complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his holy, his perfectly holy purposes. You think? So through through a so this these are some of the greatest minds in church history, and they are saying, you know what? We see some things in the Bible. We see that God is utterly in control, and we see that man is responsible, and we don't know how those things work together, and we've thought it through to the end of what the Bible will tell us, and then we come to the end of it all, and we see that there is an inscrutability to God, and so we're going to write this statement, and Christians 500 years later are going to be reading it, and the best we got is that through the complex arrangement of methods, he makes things kind of happen. Yet he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creature and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous. He can neither originate nor approve of sin. Okay. Is that strange mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, is that all clear for you now? We good? We good? All clear now, right? I I, I read these things for you on top of that scripture, hopefully to encourage you. That if you struggle, if you struggle with the meshing together of these biblical truths and it causes you to, to, to wonder and, and to worship and to, to how can this be, then you're in good company because the greatest minds in the history of the church have found themselves in exactly that same place. So a simple definition of providence is God's creation A simple definition of providence, again, would be God's creation and control and ordaining of all things for our good and his glory. And although that might make God seem a little bit bigger than we previously have thought or been taught, to think anything less, listen to me now, to think anything less to detract any way, to say, oh, no, I, that makes me uncomfortable that God would be involved somehow or that this would, God would allow for the purposes of this. This seems, some sort of, this seems like God isn't fully good. Friends, to detract, to pull even one little brick from the glorious wall of God's utter sovereignty is to make him not biblically God. So then let's look at our text again. Proverbs chapter 16, and let's read through it, and let's see how this text applies providence, and then let's end on three confessions that we can go into this new year with. Let's look again at our text, Proverbs chapter 16, and I want you to note 
I want you to know the unashamed mixture of God's providence, God's control, and man's responsibility. Let's look again at Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In other words, you've got your part to do, person, Christian, but the answer, the the final way that it's going to fall out comes from God. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. In other words, we have a limited perspective. We think we know what's right, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord in light of the fact that all he's going to say in this proverb about the sovereignty and providence of God, he doesn't doesn't pull back at all from admonishing, exhorting us to commit ourselves to the Lord. Commit your work to the Lord, verse 3, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. So we know here, we see that final justice comes through the Lord, but we can read verse 4, and we can say right on the heels of verse 3, well, if the Lord has made everything for its purpose... If everything's going to fall out according to the way the Lord has intended it to be, then why even commit my way to the Lord? It's just the future is going to be what the future is, but that's not the way the Scriptures take it. Commit your work to the Lord because you have a purpose. Verse 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. God has even allowed iniquity. He's allowed the fall so that His Son Jesus would come and atone for this iniquity. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So even the fall is premeditated by God because the Lamb is the one who is slain before the foundations of the earth. Verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness and then great revenues with injustice. In verse 9, here's the heart of this proverb. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I want you to see the connection between verse 3 and verse 9. It almost seems like it's saying sort of things going in the opposite direction. Verse 3 seems to accent the, the cause and effect of man's responsibility. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. But verse 9 seems to go the other direction and to put the accent on God's undergirding, the the secret hand of providence that's going to bring about the Lord's purposes. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Notice the connection there. It's it's sending us sort of in, in seemingly opposite directions, which actually fit perfectly under the good providence of God. See how the Bible treats this doctrine. Providence, friends, is like oxygen that should fuel the fire of our Christian life, not water that puts it out. There is no, in the scriptures, particularly in Proverbs 19, there is no disincentive to plan, to work, or to strive. But there is an understanding that something greater is at work in his people. 
So let's conclude with three confessions for believers to begin a new year. Three thoughts, three resolutions, if you will, in a sense, but not so much resolutions as confessions. We stand on this. We stand on these truths. First, God is in control of our future, and nothing will happen to you this year by chance. Nothing. And I say that with uh, pastoral sensitivity and thinking of people in this room who this past year have faced terrible difficulty, sickness, loss of loved ones, members of this church passing away, terrible relational difficulty. And it can be very, very easy and very natural of us to in those moments, all of a sudden when that thing comes up out of nowhere, for that to be seemingly the most powerful thing in the universe, that circumstance, the, the sting of that situation. But as we face this upcoming year on these truths, we can face those things knowing that God is in complete control. Nothing that you're facing, nothing that you will face, nothing that you have faced has come to you by some sort of random, chaotic karma. It has come to you first as it's passed through the good and gracious hand of your Father, God. And friends, let's admit something. Let's admit something that is really easy to preach on us. I mean, who, who in here is going to really disagree with that? That's easy to preach on a Sunday morning when everybody around you is sort of in a pretty decent mood and it's much harder to live out by yourself in the quietness of your own mind when life seems to be spiraling and you're putting your head on the pillow and you can't sleep. But that's when this needs to be most true in our lives. God is in control of our future and nothing. And there's a kind of, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of discipline in the Christian life. We need to, we need to, confess these things in the light so that we will be able to remember them spiritually in the darkness. Confession number two. Not only is God just in control of all things, but secondly, God is working for our good to make us more like Christ. It's not just a, a kind of impersonal providence that, you know, if that bad diagnosis comes or that terrible situation happens or that thing doesn't come through or whatever that relational difficulty is, it's not like, oh gosh, well, God's in charge. I just have to face it. I'm one of eight billion people in this, in this world. No, for his people, God is not only in control of all things, but the great promise is that he is working it for our good to bring about the end, which is our Christ-likeness. Listen to the gospel logic of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. This is Paul concluding this wonderful argument that he's built through the first eight chapters of Romans 1 through 8. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? How are we going to respond to all that God has done for us? See, and basically, these things is the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel is that we are all sinners, every one of us. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. But God in his glory 
sends his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to, to offer his perfect obedience on the cross and to, to absorb the wrath of God, to propitiate is the biblical word, to take away the wrath of God, to, 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 to extinguish it and, and turn that wrath into grace and not only to take our sin away, but to give us his righteousness and then to take a dead heart, a, a person who has nothing in them that's going after God and to give that new heart life and to give that new heart faith so that that heart is awakened and it sees Jesus and it's able now to turn away from sin and to put their trust in Jesus and to be reconciled to him and to be united to him. And there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This glorious saving grace of the gospel, Paul is saying, what should we say to these things? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? And here's his logic. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what's the logic of that text? It means that if God decided to save you, he decided to awaken your heart so that you would trust in Jesus and all of your sins would be forgiven and all of the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you and you are justified by faith, then that means that God is so infinitely, amazingly, gloriously invested in you that he has guaranteed that he's not going to give up on you because of some diagnosis or some relationship or some situation or some event that goes bad in your life here in your remaining life. That's the logic. We just need to read it slowly and live from it. If he didn't spare the supreme treasure of the universe then how will he not graciously with him give you all things? And that all things is not necessarily earthly comfort. It is eternal inheritance with God forever. And so if you are a Christian, friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, regardless of how good you feel about subjectively what's going on in your life right now, how confident you are looking ahead into this new year, how bad you feel about how you failed in 2022, God is radically, infinitely, gloriously committed to finish what he started in you. In fact, Paul says that, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, that, that's, a, uh, th that's the type of verse that should, that should put our feet on the ground, and it should give us a kind of sober-mindedness. It's not, it's not, this isn't a prosperity gospel verse that says God's going to make everything fine for you now. This is a verse that actually, actually, it actually goes way, it's way more glorious than anything that this earthly life can give. It's saying to us, that remember, let's, let's remember what these Christians of old have said. It's saying that God is going to use every, he is so invested in you. The good news of the gospel, that he's forgiven your sin through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, through making your heart alive, through reconciling yourself to him through Christ. He is so committed to you that he is going to gloriously use everything in your life to bring you to this place even rain and drought, good and bad, he's going to use it as tools to chisel you and make you more like Jesus. He's committed to that. And when we see that, 
we can put our feet on the ground and we can fight. We can live. We can strive. There's this glorious resting and striving that happens in the Christian when they see this. This then brings me to my third and final confession for this new year. Therefore, we should plan and pray with confidence. Therefore, we should plan and pray with confidence. Because these glorious truths work together. God is sovereign, and i got to work. i got to commit my way to the Lord. This is Paul's logic in Philippians 2. He says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I think in verse 13, Paul is basically elaborating on Proverbs 16:9. The heart of a man plans his way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's God who's willing and working his good pleasure in you. It's the Lord who establishes your steps. Have you heard of Charles Spurgeon? Um, he, he was a, an English pastor back in London, uh, back in the mid-1800s. And he said this. Now Spurgeon died when he was 57, by the way. And um, I'm getting closer to that age. And my other favorite uh, historical figure, unrelated to theology, is Vince Lombardi. He also died when he was 57. So 57, that, that year, it's coming soon. It's kind of getting in my head a little bit. But according to this sermon... It's okay, because God has, <laughs> whatever happens, happens, right? The Lord is in control. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Listen to what Spurgeon says about providence. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is God upon that throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we trust. And it is God, I'll add, upon that throne that we begin this new year with his firm foundation under our feet. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, again, this is easy to preach. It's harder to live. Give us the grace to actually believe that if you are for us, who could be against us? That you who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Lord, make us more convinced of this as we sing as we respond, as we go into this year, for your glory and our joy.
in Jesus' name.